1961, Belmont Books published Are We There Yet? A romantic suspense novel by upstart writer Pizza McCorrell. Are We There Yet? was the tale of an amateur detective caught in a deadly web of vanishing hobos in small-town America. Winning favorable reviews and selling over two million units, Pete's McCorrell was, as they said, a scribe to keep your eyes on. After Niagara Falls, Algonquin Park is Canada's number two top natural feature. As the sun rose over the mist-covered waters of Algonquin Lake, home of Eagle Lodge, one of the most prestigious inns anywhere, a landscaper discovered the shapely body of a young, blonde-haired honey slumped over the seat of a blue and white dory moored at the docks. Feeling her wrist for a pulse and finding none, he screamed for help. Call the police. Drowning victim. Call the police. Help me. Help me. The lifeless body in the boat belonged to 22-year-old Piper Adams. As lovely as a snowfall in Vermont, as bewitching as an Abyssinian, Piper was more than a beautiful corpse. Had she lived, Piper was an aspiring writer herself. Until that day, a day that would never come now, she was the personal assistant of Pizza McCorrell. At the lodge, the sky was obscured as clouds blew in. A police perimeter was erected. By the shack next door, a blank-faced boy prowled aimlessly. His name was Curtis Ray. Except for Lola, the baby lamb who cowered between his legs, no one paid much attention to Curtis Ray. They said Curtis Ray's mama, who vanished last year, was also his sister. But it was never proved and no one knew for sure. With the mind of a child and the cravings of a raw-boned, barefooted 21-year-old, Curtis Ray customarily wore overalls and a bucket hat, weather permitting, every day. Clasping the binoculars and biting his upper lip, Curtis Ray squinted to get a good look at the blonde girl's cadaver bobbing in the boat. She must have been pretty, Lola said the simpleton quietly as he caressed the soft pink ear of the lamb below. I bet she was real purty. In 1961, Pizza McCorrell, 38 pounds thinner, was hailed as the greatest young writer since Patricia Highsmith. By 1973, Nine of Pizza's books became TV movies or TV miniseries. But today, Pizza McCorrell's often copied but never reproduced success may have ended. At 9.07 a.m. in the woodsy main dining room of Eagle Lodge, wearing heels and argyle sweater, Pizza sat down with her literary agent and secret lover, 24-year-old Mundo Manson. Looking into Pizza's doleful eyes, Mundo said, I was four when your book came out. Pizza scarfed down some bacon and eggs and said, her mouth half full. Need to remind me, Mondo, or sponsor me. I hate to bring this up, but when are you leaving your wife? Mundo looked out the window and, taking a gulp of reconstituted orange juice, said, I told you, I would do a turkey drop in November. 
Unimpressed, Pizza left the table and stood by the picture window, looking at the lake. Seeing activity dockside, she said, Something's happening down there, Mundo. Before he could stand up, two ruddy, complected policemen, Officers Dent and Lanyard, grabbed Pizza by her fleshy arms. Officer Lanyard said, Are you Pizza McCoro? The full-figured writer yelped. Ouch, you're hurting me, officer. PC Dent said, Step out of your shoes, ma'am. Rushing to her side, Mundo said, What's going on here, officer? Dragging her out of the room, Dent looked over his shoulder and said, Pizza McCorrell is under arrest. For murder. In New York City, at 2 p.m. the same day, 70-year-old Sterling Quilty hung up the phone. Living in the Nebraska, he took the elevator five floors down to see Neely. An attorney, Quilty represented Pizza McCorrell's interests. Earlier in the day, he received a long-distance call from Pizza, who was in Canada on vacation with her assistant Piper Adams and literary agent Mundo Manson. On the phone, Pizza was hysterical. She was charged in the murder of Piper Adams. Sterling wanted Neely Cairo to send someone from her team of investigators to gather evidence and clear Pizza of any wrongdoing. After Sterling left, Neely looked out the window, picked up the phone, and dialed her son, the remarkable Buster Lee. The Mysterious World of Buster Lee, presented by Adam Ive. Are we there yet? As is the procedure, before jailed, Pizza McCorrell was handcuffed, stuffed in a police car, paraded around town with sirens blaring, fingerprinted, photographed, and searched by a 175-pound unladylike custodian, born a natal male with a mullet. Despite her circumstances, Pizza was incarcerated in an air-conditioned, low-security, 1,700-square-foot cell with private bath, a vanity, a roomy kitchen with a dishwasher, a queen-size bed, a dining table for eight, two full-size Chesterfields, a walk-in closet, and a furnished balcony overlooking scenic Algonquin Lake. Known by locals as Camp Cupcake, to Pizza's way of thinking, with all respect to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Camp Cupcake was as terrible as a gulag. <laughs> that night, after a steak dinner with all the ice cream a girl could want, Pizza sobbed herself to sleep. <laughs> when not on one adventure or another, Buster Lee rented a one-bedroom apartment from Joan Reynolds in Travistock, New Jersey. The apartment was special. There were secret doors and hallways, a crime lab with a tape recorder, a phone, a microscope, a periscope, a ham radio, tweezers, unusual potions, and an assortment of magnifying glasses. 
but home was 200 miles behind him. For an hour, Buster Lee and Beck flew from New York State to Canada. Of course, it was conjecture, but rumor had it. After engendering seven girls in the summer of 1967, Buster Lee's daddy, an Austrian called Otto, moved to the Canadian side of Niagara Falls and became a vigneron. Something was pulling at Buster Lee, and he promised, one day, he would go to Niagara Falls and meet his daddy, face to face. Wednesday at 11 a.m., Buster Lee landed the seaplane and docked at Eagle Lodge. After the passenger door opened, Beck, the blue healer, scampered across the dock and up the lawn-covered hill to the lodge. While Buster Lee gathered his things, a strange figure appeared. As thin as a cornstalk after harvest, and as muscular as a gymnast, Curtis Ray was one of the strangest people Buster Lee had ever seen. Born some 20 years ago and raised by a clan of mountain folk, Curtis Ray neither read or wrote. By his side was a five-week-old lamb called Lola. He sauntered over to the plane. Reaching up, Curtis Ray touched the wing and squinting said, never seen nothing like that before. Botting Buster Lee's luggage, Curtis Ray offered to carry it. He appeared harmless. Nodding his head, Buster Lee said, you sure can, I'm Buster Lee. Curtis Ray reached out his hand as though it was wounded or broken one too many times. Standing a foot away, Buster Lee noticed Curtis Ray had six fingers, some webbed. He also noticed a trace of leftover glitter around his eyes as though he was in a punk band. He was odd as all get out. Living in New York, Buster Lee saw a lot of stuff, but he'd seen nothing like Curtis Ray. No, sir. Dent Newton joined the provincial police and served in Algonquin since he was 18. Second day on the job, Dent ran over a five-year-old boy, leaving him wheelchair-bound. Dismissed as an occupational mishap by the department, Dent never forgave himself. That was eight years ago. Today, he was tight-lipped, 6'3", narrow, and whippet-thin. Locals described him as all spec house and plywood with movie star good looks, but emotionally guarded. Since enlisting, Dent investigated 4,000 hunting mishaps and 352 drownings, but no murder. This was his first murder. When word came that Buster Lee would help, Dent was happy as heaven. Everyone in the force heard of the adventures of Buster Lee. He was a legend. When this was over, Dent would celebrate with tomato wine. Maybe Buster Lee would join him. Maybe Dent would show Buster Lee the real Algonquin. After tipping Curtis Ray, who lingered longer than he should, Buster Lee met Officer Dent in an empty office on the ground floor. On Dent's desk was an old copy of National Review, some mail, a coffee cup, and a few chewed up pencils. 
standing beneath a poster of an Ojibwa legend painting. Buster Lee examined the evidence and photos Officer Dent had gathered. From what Buster Lee could see, there was enough stuff on Pizza McCorrell to lock her up forever. Since the arrest, Dent discovered A. Piper was intimate with attractive Mundo Manson. The same Mundo who was intimate with his 52-year-old client, Pizza McCorrell. B. Pizza gave no alibi for her whereabouts today, yesterday, or the day before. And, saving the best for last, C. Pizza's fingerprints were all over the dory where Piper was found. Standing behind the lanky police officer, feeling as fit as a finch, Buster Lee brushed his bangs away from his eyes and said, Can I look at those prints of the boat again? Dent handed the photographs to Buster Lee and looking out the window, turned away. Holding his face in his hands, Dent lost control. One by one, his tears landed on the floor below. When you had a mystery on your hands, there were no better people to call than Joan Reynolds and Lars LaGuardia. Retired and living in rural New Jersey, Joan was a competitive crossword player, former actor, athlete, model, and sometimes sleuth. Knowing Neely Cairo for 20 years, Reynolds, having worked at Bletchley Park in World War II, would help out from time to time. And in case you missed it, Joan has a large home in rural New Jersey with an apartment she rented to Buster Lee. On the other side of the coin is Lars LaGuardia. If you don't know Lars LaGuardia, you should. Having grown up overseas in a diplomatic family, Lars studied Buddhist philosophy and kabuki theater as a boy. Sophisticated beyond his years, always wearing an oatmeal-colored suit in a small variety of shades, Lars was a master of logistics, oriental systems of thought, and disguise. One moment, he could be a 75-year-old Navajo Indian living in a teepee. The next, he may be a society gal in her 50s strolling the sunny streets of Madrid. In New York, Joan and Lars were strap-hanging to House of Records in Lower Manhattan, where they hoped to unearth every detail on Pizza McCorrell. As any seasoned investigator will tell you, authors often lead a double life. Once you scratch the surface, you discover a plentitude of excess and hedonism. With her knowledge of the Dewey Decimal System, younger listeners may want to goggle this up online, Joan accompanied Lars to Cooper House of Records. If you wanted long-forgotten documents, Cooper House was the place to start. With thousands of items to examine, Joan and Lars were sure there was enough on pizza to stitch together a portrait of pizza any novelist would find inspiring. Item 1. In 1973, Pizza McCorrell failed to pay income tax. Item 2. Pizza was married twice and was born Dolores Legassi in a fishing village in Maine. The farther back they went, the murkier the Pizza McCorrell story became. In the fall of 1961, when Pizza was 30 and published her first novel, three bodies, all male, were found in the park in front of Pizza McCorrell's Manhattan apartment. Bruised and clad in underthings, the men were between 18 and 27 years old. At the autopsy, 
they determined the victims were impoverished and engaged in lewd work to survive. In each case, a copy of Pizza McCorrell's book, Are We There Yet?, was found in the hands or near the body of the dead. Because the victims could not be identified, Pizza McCorrell was never charged, and the matter was dropped. On the speakerphone in the temporary office set up for the investigation, Buster Lee and Officer Dent listened intently to Lars and Jones' report. The item about 1961 bodies lowered the temperature in the room. After Joan and Lars wrapped up their side of things, Buster Lee and Dent filed a report. Officer Dent had a maid that would testify McCorrell was in her room the morning of the murder. Dent had a theory which explained how McCorrell's fingerprints got on the boat. Always one to shy away from dropping a bomb, Buster Lee stepped forward and dropped a bomb. Reading her diary, Buster discovered Pizza was planning to give Piper a raise next week. How do you like them apples, said Buster Lee, chewing on a blade of sweet grass. With his ear to the wall outside Officer Dent's temporary headquarters, Curtis Ray Eves dropped on the phone call with Buster Lee, Officer Dent, Lars, and Joan in NYC. Although his eyes sat perfectly in their sockets, such precision made Curtis Ray look dishonest. As a counterbalance, nature gifted him with atrocious eyesight. As much as he loved gazing through publications of dubious merit or in the windows of strangers' homes, Curtis Ray's deepest shame came from the sordid pleasure he received from listening to the intimate conversations of others. Only macking down a double serving of ice cream with two sliced bananas, five tablespoons of crushed peanuts, and a half a cup of the sweetest hot butterscotch was better. Mm-mm. When the call ended, Curtis Ray, barefoot and disheveled as usual, scampered down the hallway like the humpback of Notre Dame and hid in one of the empty rooms. At 5 p.m., Curtis Ray poured some charcoal in his hibachi and prepared to grill something for supper. Finishing his walk with Beck, Buster Lee saw Pizza McCorrell's agent, Mundo Mason, leaning on the balcony of Eagle Lodge. He was gazing at the lake and thinking about something. Buster Lee introduced himself. Recognizing the brave buck from pictures in the media, Mundo said, I never thought I would meet Buster Lee in the Canadian wilderness of all places. Your adventures are the subject of the dinner parties and social functions I attend in my job as a literary agent. One night at the Met, the next the Frick, or dinner with the mayor, or a writer, or a famous person. Paul Harvey, Andy Warhol, Jocelyn Wildenstein. Everyone talks about the mysterious adventures of Buster Lee. Knowing the full details of Mundo's private affairs, Buster Lee controlled what he said. He didn't want Mundo to know how much he knew. But he talked about the murders from 1961. What a chilling tale. Drifters, men with no ambition or direction, implications and innuendo, copies of Pizza's first book. When Buster Lee rapped, Mundo said, who knew Pizza was tied to a series of murders 20 years ago? Do you have enough to exonerate her now? Buster Lee nodded. But the gesture was a lie. The two men walked in silence. A few deer darted by. Buster Lee took Mundo by the arm and said, 
If you think of anything, be sure you tell me, okay? Be sure. Lola the baby lamb nibbled on some lemon thyme. Wiping the sleep dust from his eyes, Curtis Ray gawked skyward as another seaplane landed at Eagle Lodge. On board were Lars LaGuardia and Joan Reynolds. With them were copies of the Pizza McCorrell files. Although the records didn't address Pizza McCorrell's role in the sad demise of lovely Piper Adams, they did cast a strange pall on the hidden history of Pizza McCorrell writ large. After meeting Buster Lee and Dent and going through everything they knew about Pizza McCorrell, everyone called it an early night. Sunday morning, through no fault of his own, Lars stepped onto the unkempt property of Curtis Ray. Since his mama's disappearance, Curtis Ray took care of himself. A nice check came every month, and that took the load off. Tied to the uneven, rotting dock was a dory so old any reasonable person would burn it. For reasons only Curtis Ray knew, he often threw a basketball in the lake. With nothing to do, Curtis Ray would gaze at the ball and follow its trajectory for up to 45 minutes at a time. Seeing Lars, Curtis Ray asked if he would mind fishing the ball out of the lake. Why don't you get on the boat and fetch the ball yourself, said Lars. Curtis Ray looked down and said, I can't swim. Except for the lapping waves and the occasional page being turned, all was quiet. Beck knew better. Hearing something in the distance, a pale sound, a drone, something beyond the range of humans, he opened one eye and looked around attentively. Five minutes later, Buster Lee and Lars sat up and saw a seaplane land. Without a trace of irony, Lars said, This week Eagle Lodge is as busy as Butler Field at Thanksgiving. With the ceiling fan spinning overhead, Officer Dent Newton was typing a report when the young couple burst into his office. The girl was young, wore a hoop dress, penny loafers, and her hair in pigtails. The young man was as handsome as anyone from Hollywood and wore a never-out-of-style crumpled seersucker suit. The well-dressed, square-jawed Bieber said, I'm Mutt Keep News, a friend of Buster Lee from New York. Pointing to the girl, he said, and this is Inertia McSweeney. Tell him who you are, Inertia. The demure girl looked at Officer Dent and bit her lip. Two things are true. Before she was famous, pizza bore a child. And in the old days, the state of Maine made reconciliation between birth parents and their offspring practically impossible. With her right heel snapped in half, Dent Newton escorted Inertia McSweeney to the basement where her mother, Pizza, was held. Seeing Inertia, Pizza said, For ten years I tried to find you, Inertia, but I was blocked by Maine's secretive adoption laws. Happy to be reunited, Pizza and Inertia made up for lost time. Upstairs in the main office, Officer Dent heard Mutt keep new side of the story. Let me get this right, said Dent. 
You live in the same building as Buster Lee's famous mama psychic, Neely Cairo? Looking every inch the rascal he was, Mutt nodded. I met Inertia three weeks ago. Thanks to a blizzard of articles in the paper and on TV, Inertia knew Pizza McCorrell was her mama, and she wanted her mama exonerated. When, by the way, is the trial? Say what you will about Mutt Keep News, but he was more charismatic than anyone Dent had seen in the movies or on a TV show. When Mutt was around, all eyes were on him. That's real charisma. Welcome to the most talked about trial of the year. The People versus Pizza McCorrell. Known for his casual attitude and shoot-from-the-hip demeanor was Judge Dutch Albright. In the solemn, non-air-conditioned room where Buster Lee, Joan Reynolds, Lars LaGuardia, Officer Dent, Mutt Keep News, Mundo Mason, Inertia McSweeney, accused killer Pizza McCorrell, and by special court disposition, Beck, the Blue Healer. Not in attendance were Curtis Ray, and of course, the late Piper Adams. The people of Algonquin were divided. If there was such a thing, everyone was keen to see truth revealed and justice served. Flown in to defend Pizza McCorrell was New York super lawyer Sterling Quilty. A colorful lawyer, Quilty always began his opening remarks with a quip. Looking sternly at the jurors, Quilty said, why did the mystery writer cross the road? All you could hear was the ceiling fan. Breaking the silence, Quilty said, Why did the mystery writer cross the road? To have a personal anecdote that maps onto an easily recognizable joke format. Okay, thought Busterly, looking quizzically at Lars and Joan. After a week of confusing testimony, Mundo Mason was called to the witness box. Pointing at Mundo and addressing the jury of small-town Canadians, Quilty said, Just so that everyone knows, the deceased Piper Adams was going to tell Pizza McCorrell that you, Mundo Mason, embezzled $100,000 from her account. Piper was also going to tell Pizza how you manipulated her into a series of compromising acts. His head down, Mundo Mason buried his face in his hands. Fighting back tears, Mundo leapt to his feet and said, But the money was mine. I gave Pizza the ideas. I set up all of Pizza's TV rights. I gave her the stories and plots. The money was mine, I tell you, mine. When Mundo ceased his rant, you could hear a pin drop. Pivoting towards Mundo Mason, a crushed man if there ever was one, the world-weary lawyer, Sterling Quilty, said, And what will you do with the $100,000 now, Mundo? Not even Nancy Grace could have knocked it out of the park with as much finesse. Sterling Quilty was more than great. He was fantastic. Mundo Mason would fry. Three weeks after the trial, back in NYC at the Nebraska, everyone, including Beck, was eating takeout. Tossing the last of the copies of the McCorrell files in the fireplace, Joan Reynolds said, 
That's the last time we'll have to think about Pizza McCorrell for the foreseeable. Still, I wonder what really happened in 1961. According to reports, police found evidence of the men on Pizza and in her apartment. Holding a book on U.S. law, Buster Lee said, In some jurisdictions of Canada, Algonquin being one, you can't press charges if you can't identify the victim. They call it the Stendhal Code, like the Napoleonic Code. Sitting down, Buster Lee opened a fortune cookie which advised, Try as you may, you can't change the unchangeable. After reading the fortune cookie, Buster Lee wondered out loud why Curtis Ray was never a suspect in Piper Adams' demise. He was the dimmest string of lights on the tree. He didn't know the barn door from the bull's back. But under the overalls, he was strong as a coyote. He could have squeezed the bedazzle out of Piper Adams and not known it. Wiping the crumbs from his mouth, Lars said, But that would mean Curtis Ray would have to get into the boat, and he would never do that because he couldn't swim. How do you know that? asked Buster Lee. Anyone for seconds? said Joan. After cleaning up, everyone left. With Beck asleep on his chest, Buster Lee made a note to buy some tomato wine when he was old enough. Who knows? If Dent liked it, maybe Buster Lee would like it too. Denouement. No sign of Lola. Nevertheless, at 5 p.m., Curtis Ray poured some charcoal in his hibachi. Curtis Ray loved grilling. Everything grilled was finger-licking good. Mmm-mmm. You've been listening to The Mysterious World of Buster Lee. Presented by Adam Ive. Mystery World theme by Oliver Wickham. Follow us on Instagram. Go ampersandpod underscore planet. For show notes and merch, go to podplanet.org. Special thanks to Tattoo Sound and Music. The Mysterious World of Buster Lee is written and produced by podplanet.org. 